This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Susie Ann, in for Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset, your source for everything happening in Chicago and beyond. Chicagoland loves its museums. And I'm not even just talking about museum campus where you can find the field and shed. We're also home to a museum of surgical sciences, the Museum of Broadcast Communications, even a museum dedicated to Hummel dolls. But up till now, the city has not had a physical museum dedicated to public housing, despite Chicago's long and complicated history with it. But that's changing. After 15 years of planning and fundraising, leaders have broken ground on the country's first public housing museum. And here to tell us all about it are the executive director of the National Public Housing Museum, Lisa Yoon Lee, and Crystal Palmer, the vice chair of the National Public Housing Museum Board and former resident of Henry Horner Homes in Chicago. So, Lisa, ground broke for the museum's brick-and-mortar building last week. How has the museum been operating without the building? Thank you so much. I mean, it was a magical day of bringing together public housing residents, public officials, and advocates and activists to celebrate the groundbreaking for the museum. And we have been operating as a museum for the last 10 years, sort of as a museum in the streets. We have a temporary location. Mm -hmm. We've been doing exhibitions and public programs and building an oral history archive, really as a kind of pilot testing all of these things in order to go into the museum. Yeah. How does it feel that things are finally, you know, getting started? (laughs) Very surreal and magical, except that we know how much hard work and imagination and grit that it took to actually get to this point. Yeah, for sure. Well, well, Crystal, let's talk about where the museum will be located. Um, Where will people be able to find it? And uh, tell us about the historical significance of that location. Uh, So it would be hosted at um, Jane Addams. Mm-hmm. A development that uh, was built in the Abla community, now known as Roosevelt Square, on Ada and Taylor. Uh, it's so significant because it will house the stories of families that live in public housing. It's, it, you know, there are, um, the person that thought about this, Devera Beverly, uh, she wanted a place where you can, people can go, our families can go and learn more about our stories, that our stories weren't just washed away because public housing no longer exists. There are many types of museum, but this is the first one ever of this kind, first cultural institution that talks about public housing. Yeah, well, well, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, you know, we mentioned all those other museums we have Mm -hmm. in and around Chicago. Um, uh, Lisa, why do you think there hasn't been a museum dedicated to public housing yet? Yeah, well, 
first of all, museums have always been a way that power and privilege have reinscribed itself in our country. And so we are really proud that this is a museum that is sort of decolonizing all of that and challenging mainstream narratives and saying, no, actually, public housing residents, people who've been living on the so-called margins of society, oftentimes without power, actually deserve a museum as well. And, you know, we are thrilled that we can use arts, culture, and public policy to not only remember the past and to sort of address critical social issues that people are dealing with today, but also reimagine the future for all of us, which is really the role of this cultural institution. Yeah. Well, Crystal, do you think it's important to have the first public housing museum right here in Chicago? Yes. This is where uh, public housing was built, 1936, here in Chicago. So, this is where the plans for transformation started here in Chicago. So there are so many significant, you know, events that have happened that it should happen in Chicago. And I think uh, Ms. Beverly and her visionary thoughts uh, just thought this would be a great place. And why not be on the site where she was the local advisory council president? Yes. Yeah. Can I say, Susie, I mean, I think sometimes people ask us, why Chicago and Chicago really is the natural place for a national public housing mm -hmm. museum. Nowhere in the country were the dreams as big and also the dreams deferred as often, you know. And so and we are really looked to for both the successes and the failures of public housing. And so we're excited that Chicago is going to be the place for this museum. But we are a national museum, and I just yes. want to really underscore that, you know, our oral histories are collected from public housing residents from across the country. And even though we tell the story of public housing through the intimate eyes and lens of families who lived in the Jane Addams homes, it opens up into large public policies. And when we start to ask, you know, how is world making happen through the eyes of a poor Jewish family from 1938 or an African-American family who lived in the Jane Addams homes in 1960, um, in 1960s, it really transforms the way we understand um, sort of large national policies as well. Yeah. I mean, so you mentioned um, the the oral history portion here. Um, you know, of course, when you go to an art museum, people expect to see art. So what will folks be able to see and experience when uh, they go to this museum? Ooh, so much. I mean, we are a very unique cultural institution that is unleashing the power of both art and historical artifacts. So, for example, there's one large gallery which collects the everyday objects, the vernacular objects of public housing residents from across the country, and they write the labels themselves for these objects in writing workshops that are held with Audrey Petty. And this is a really beautiful commitment to everyday people. We also have three restored apartments from three different generations wow. of public housing residents, including a Jewish family that lived in public housing, an Italian family, a Puerto Rican family, a Polish family, and then also an African-American family. And so this really challenges mainstream narratives about who lived in public housing. Um, there's also a, an incredible museum store, which is a cooperative that is owned with public housing residents to build solidarity economy and tell the stories of businesses and entrepreneurs who lived in public housing. And we also have some amazing art, including a new um, commission, which is uh, of uh, threshold 
uh, piece, which is the entryway to the museum, which is made by Amanda Williams, who just won a MacArthur Genius Prize, and Ola Lekin Jayafus, um, and the restored animal court of Edgar Miller, the WPA sculpture, which is also going to be in the museum. Um, there's actually so much more, including a music room, <laughs> yes, which I've celebrates us. <laughs> yes, talk about that music room. I've heard about that, and I and I was intrigued. What, what will folks find in this music room? Yeah, well, one of the things is due to a kind of deeply racialized history in the United States, people usually have like one image of public housing, and it's not usually a story of people living with in community building vibrant lives, friendships, um, using all of their ingenuity to not just survive but also thrive. Um, But it's a story which is a stereotype that people have of what it means to be poor, what it means to be black in America, and we're really challenging that. And the music room is one of these spaces that is filled with collective joy and is so vibrant and tells the story of musicians who came from public housing. It's actually being curated um, by Spinderella, DJ Spinderella, who was a the DJ at one point for Salt and Pepper yeah. and herself is an amazing cultural worker and artist. Um, she grew up in the Lewis Heaton Pink Houses in Brooklyn, and it will tell the story of musicians from Barbara Streisand to Elvis to Earth, Wind and Fire yeah. to Diana Ross. I mean, there are just so many musicians who where public housing was actually a training ground for them. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Well, Crystal, how have residents of public housing been involved in the process of curating collections for the museum? I mean, we, we heard about Spinderella. Yeah. Uh, how else are folks involved? So uh, the artifacts that we have now actually come from public housing residents from Chicago. Uh, Juanita Stevenson's from Lathrop has a water hose. Uh, Devira Beverly. Uh, she has her father's rocking chair. So there are a lot of artifacts that we are currently using now. Francine Washington used flashlights, so we have articles of her flashlights. So there are a lot of things that uh, we've taken from public housing and put on the road because, remember, we're on the road. We've been on the road since uh, probably since the conception of it. Uh, one other thing I want to bring out, people have myths about public housing. Right, they think public housing was just a African American place, but as you will find out from the museum, that there were Jewish families, there were other people. It wasn't just built for it wasn't built for public. I mean, uh, African Americans. It was built for people that were coming from the war. Yeah. Right. So people had a misconception that this was all an African American deal, but it wasn't. Yeah. Also, I mean, Crystal Palmer, who's the vice chair of our board. I mean, we are really proud that our institution has included public housing residents, not just from Jump, from their imagining in a museum in the first place where they could participate in the narrative about public housing, but also on our board, which includes public housing residents from across the country. Yes. And, and again, you've collected um, some oral histories. Uh, one of the former residents you got uh, stories from is Liz Thompson of the Cleveland Avenue Foundation for Education. Uh, full disclosure, Liz is also a member of Chicago Public Media's board of directors. Um, she talks about the two primary forms of entrepreneurship in her part of Cabrini Green. Mm. Let's take a listen. 
there was the candy truck or candy store and someone's beauty salon in their kitchen. Of course, the candy store was the most fun. And for us, it was a truck, an old hollowed out truck. There were multiple candy trucks in the neighborhood. None were mobile, let me be clear. And they built homemade shelves along the sides of the truck and they put little boxes of candy on the sides of the truck. And so you would step up into the candy truck kids you know would take their nickel and go down and buy five pieces of candy from the candy truck what was it like gathering stories like these from actual public housing residents i mean these are real stories they're real stories when i grew up uh we went to 2111 miss bessie house on the second floor and you went in there and it was all kind of candy uh (laughs) there's a tasty freeze that uh was out of an old garage that you can go and get homemade ice cream sandwiches and polishes and cookies and two for a penny candy. <laughs> uh, on the 14th floor in 1239 was the ice cup lady where you go get an ice cup. You know, so these these stories are all true. And, you know, today is still happening. You still yeah. have those type of housing, people selling candy, people getting hair done. You know, so those things really, they do exist. The thing that we're really proud of at the museum also is that these stories are gathered in large part by public housing residents who are trained in our Beauty Turner Academy, which is an oral history training corps um, that is run by Liu Chen, who a member of our staff. And it's a really amazing program that sees oral history as a strategy, as an act of resistance against just one mainstream narrative for anything. And so if people are interested in being trained in oral history methodology, we want to invite them to also join us at the National Public Housing Museum. Yeah. Well, well, Crystal, as a former resident of Henry Horner Homes in West Haven on the near west side, how does it feel for you seeing an effort like this happening to share the lives and experiences of people in public housing? I feel proud because the stories need to be told. Um, I remember just sitting on Washington one day at home. I remember when you couldn't catch, I'm sorry, a Caucasian person walking on the side of the, that side of the street. Uh, and then all of a sudden I just started seeing people appearing. And I was thinking like, wow, we're changing. We're changing because now we have people that would have never entered public housing actually interfacing with us. So it's important to tell the story, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, I, and I say it all the time, because there are a lot of great stories that come from public housing. There are a lot of bad stories that also come from there, too. And I would say that what's so great about it is our relationships continue on and on because we have reunions every year. Horner has a reunion that's been going on for probably 15, 20 years where people come back every year and just have fun and reminisce. You know, so public housing is really important in many of our lives. Yeah. Well, as as we wrap up here, um, you know, Lisa, some people think that museums can't be political or tell people how they should feel about a specific issue. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, well, 
I, I love the quote by Arundhati Roy that once you see it, you can't unsee it. Mm. And doing nothing is as political as doing something. And so with housing insecurity being one of the preeminent issues of our day, um, none of us can afford to not pay attention and be political about this particular issue. And the museum is a very proud member of the International Sites of Conscience, which means that you cannot solve any problem today without going upstream. And for us, that means going back in time, harnessing the power of place and memory and asking what have we not yet learned from history and that we can't make this history relevant if we don't actually address the most important social justice issues of today. And whether it's policing, public health issues, public education, or just public welfare in general, and how do we understand what it is to be a commonwealth, this museum, the National Public Housing Museum, is engaging in these issues. Well, um, we're going to have to wrap it up here, um, uh, and we're going to go out on a little bit of music from Diana Ross, who uh, was also a public housing resident. Detroit! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, With me today, Lisa Yoon Lee is the executive director of the National Public Housing Museum, and Crystal Palmer is the vice chair of the National Public Housing Museum board and former resident of the Henry Horner Homes in Chicago. This episode of Reset was produced by Micah Yason and Linnea Dominic, edited by Andrew Merriweather. Want to hear more great conversations like this one? Then subscribe to our podcast. We've got tons of fascinating interviews and conversations to share with you. And don't forget to leave us a rating. That helps more people find us. I'm Susie Ann, in for Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.